So go ahead and turn to uh, Revelation chapter 1. I'm going to read verses 9 through 20, and uh, we'll, we'll cover most all of those verses tonight or allude to them. Begin reading it. Chapter 1 and verse 9. I, John, both your brother and companion in the tribulation and the kingdom and patience of Jesus Christ, was on the island that is called Patmos for the word of God and for the testimony of Jesus Christ. I was in the Spirit on the Lord's day, and I heard behind me a loud voice as of a trumpet, saying, I am the Alpha and the Omega, the first and the last. And what you see, write in a book or a scroll, and send it to the seven churches which are in Asia, to Ephesus, to Smyrna, Pergamos, to Thyatira, to Sardis, to Philadelphia, and to Laodicea. Then I turned to see the voice that spoke with me, and having turned, I saw seven golden lampstands. And in the midst of the seven golden lampstands, one like the Son of Man, clothed with a garment, down to the feet, and girded about the chest with the golden band. His head and hair were white like wool, as white as snow, and his eyes like a flame of fire. His feet were like fine brass, as if refined in a furnace, and his voice as the sound of many waters. He had in his right hand seven stars, out of his mouth went a sharp two-edged sword, and his countenance was like the sun shining in its strength. And when I saw him, I fell at his feet as dead." But he laid his right hand on me, saying to me, Do not be afraid, I am the first and the last. I am he who lives and was dead, and behold, I am alive forevermore. Amen. And I have the keys of Hades and death. Write the things which you have seen, and the things which are, and the things which will take place after this. The mystery of the seven stars which you saw in my right hand And the seven golden lampstands, the seven stars are the angel or the angels of the seven churches and the seven lampstands, which you saw are the seven churches. And so the reading of God's word again, let us pray. Lord, we pray now for the ministry of your spirit, the spirit of Christ to open our eyes, to see the wonderful things written in your word. And help us to live by them, we pray in His name. Amen. So since the fall of man, human history has been plagued uh, with conflict. Men have sought not to take dominion over the earth, but over one another. This is a result of the fall with Adam into sin. And you add to that the enmity that is between the believer and the unbeliever that opposition between uh, the seed of the woman and the seed of the serpent. And then you have persecution in the mix. And so then the history of human history, I should say, has been stained with the conflict of the nations and the persecution of the church of Jesus Christ. And sadly, at times, even a decline in the church of Jesus Christ. 
But our Lord would have us to remember His words in Matthew 16 and verse 18. He said, I will build my church and the gates of hell will not prevail against it. And so the book of Revelation reminds us of that. Even as John the Apostle is banished to the island of Patmos and writes this book given to him by divine inspiration. I'll just remind you of where we've been in uh, our study of this book of Revelation. Remember, it is, as verse 1 says, the revelation of Jesus Christ. This is about Jesus. And so to miss this and not to read it, to neglect it, is to miss a blessing. And so the writer gets to that here in verse 3. He says that blessed is he who reads and those who hear the words of this prophecy and keep the things which are in it for the time is near. And so it is a blessing. We saw that the context likely, or at least it's my view, I agree with those who have the opinion that this book was written prior to AD 70. And we looked at the reasons for that. The temple is still standing in chapter 11. We, I think, identified Nero in chapter 17 and so forth. There were persecutions before uh, AD 70 in these areas. And so we considered that. And last time we were in the book of Revelation, we saw in verses 4 through 8, I think it was, yeah, verses 4 through 8 there, Uh, what it is that the church needs under such circumstances. Uh, She needs to be strengthened in order to persevere, and that comes from the grace mentioned there in verse 4, and the peace which comes from the triune God. Uh, The church needs a laser-like focus on the person and work of the Lord Jesus Christ. And also, as we saw, the church needs a confidence in the reign and the rule of Jesus Christ. If he is sovereign, and he is, will we trust him in the way that he rules over the affairs of men? Well, tonight we come to the first of seven visions in Revelation. And so the wheels start to turn now as as we uh, look at this first uh, glorious vision of the Son of Man given to the Apostle John. And so first of all, in verses 9 through 11 there, uh, John assures us of his own solidarity with his persecuted brethren. He expresses that in verse 9. He says, I, John, both your brother and companion in the tribulation. Uh, He reminds his readers, those Christians in Asia Minor at those seven churches, uh, that he is a fellow sufferer in the name of Christ. And so he wants them to know about his suffering as well as theirs, that they are not alone. And he is, in a sense, he's reminding himself that he is not alone. And so he's not only their brother in Christ, he's also their companion in these sufferings. And by companion, he means their partner. And he says there in verse 9, the tribulation, not many tribulations, but the tribulation And perhaps this is a reference here to the events leading up to the destruction of Jerusalem, the Romans coming in, sieging Jerusalem, and the things happening back at what was at the early church home base, at least for the apostles. And uh, it could be a reference there to that. Nevertheless, it is the suffering that they were experiencing 
um, as well. And so he reminds them of these things. Now, what was his situation in particular? He tells us um, before that, he says also that he was their companion in the kingdom and patience of Jesus Christ. We ought not to look over that. Because the kingdom of Christ had already started. It had already been inaugurated with the first coming of Christ, his death, burial, and resurrection, his ascension to the right hand of God the Father. And so Christ had already been enthroned. He's already ruling and reigning over that kingdom. Now, it hasn't come in its fullness. It continues to expand. It continues to grow. And so he reminds us of that. And he talks about the patience the endurance, the perseverance. And so the great blessings in this book are pronounced to those who do endure unto the end. It'll come back to that time and again as we work our way through it. And so John tells us about his own situation. He was suffering persecution, as we've already seen, as we've read through the text. And he was on the island of Patmos. He says that there. Uh, On the Lord's day, this revelation came to him. In verse 9, he was on the island of Patmos. So Patmos was this interesting place. We're told it was a barren, uh, rocky mountain. I think it's still in existence today. And uh, because of its shape and its size, it served as a natural harbor. It was about 10 miles long and 5 miles wide. And uh, was about 40 miles, I think, off of the coast of Asia Minor. And it was common for Roman citizens who were punished, and uh, often politically so, to suffer banishment in this way. And so as they did, they would lose their, their rights as a Roman citizen. Often they would lose their own property. And William Ramsey, a Christian commentator said often it would include this, and he assumed that it would mean this for John, that those who suffered in this way uh, suffered hard labor in the quarries of Patmos. He says that John's banishment would be preceded by scourging, marked by perpetual fetters or chains, scanty clothing, insufficient food, sleep on the bare ground, a dark prison, work under the lash of the military overseer. Nevertheless, here he is suffering alone, although he's free to wander on the island. And we are told for what reason. There in verse uh, 9 again, it says, For the word of God and for the testimony of Jesus Christ. And so this is why he's Banished. This is why he's lost his Roman citizenship and suffering. It's persecution on account of the word of God and the gospel, the testimony of Jesus Christ. You know, his message, after all, today would be considered hate speech. And his message wouldn't jive with the political agenda of his country. And so they took care of him. They tried him. And they punished him, and that was his punishment, to be sent to prison at Patmos. Now, let us remember as well what Paul says elsewhere to Timothy. In 2 Timothy 2, there's Paul. He's in a dungeon. He himself is in prison for the same reason, the gospel of Christ. And he talks about his chains 
as he writes to Timothy in chapter 2. And he says that he is in chains, but the word of God is not bound by chains. And I find it rather humorous that even though John is on this island of Patmos, because of the, the, the Christian faith, that he is commissioned to write this book, and this book has traveled all over the world and is with us to this day. Why? So God, and in particular Christ, could bless his people with it. And so God's word will not return void. And so he tells us there, verse 10, he was in the spirit on the Lord's day. What does that mean, in the spirit? Well, as we've noted already, a lot of what happens and what is said in this book will harken back to the Old Testament because it is an apocalypse. It is a book of prophecy. And uh, this goes back to the language of Ezekiel. We're in Ezekiel 2, Ezekiel chapter 3. The Spirit comes upon Ezekiel. And the reason the Spirit of God comes upon Ezekiel is so that he may receive divine revelation and go out as God's prophet and preach that message and even write it down and record it for generations to come. And so he's in the Spirit. He doesn't see these things with human eyes. He doesn't hear them with human ears. He's in direct contact with the risen and reigning Lord Jesus himself, as we'll see. And this happened on the Lord's day, not the day of the Lord, but the Lord's day, Sunday, the day on which the apostles began to meet. The early church began to worship and and worship the living God. And we call it sometimes uh, not only Sunday, we call it the Christian Sabbath because the day has moved from the seventh day of the week, as we find in Acts 20, to the first day of the week. But here, it's called the Lord's Day. Now, why? Because it is that day that God has marked out for himself. He's given us six and uh, in order to perform our normal callings and daily tasks. And he reserves still one day in seven for worship. And so there is John. You might think that he would have been all alone. Well, he gets a visit from the Lord Jesus, and uh, he's caught up in the Spirit on the Lord's day. Then he tells us what it is that he heard. In verse 10, he said, I heard behind me a loud voice, a very loud voice, a mega voice in the Greek, the voice as of a trumpet. Now, that's interesting. You know, a trumpet can be piercing. I think it often is piercing. It's loud. It's distinct. And uh, it's interesting because back in the Old Testament, even when God gave the law at Sinai, his voice was so overwhelming in Exodus 19 that the people could not um, endure it. And so Moses became the mediator. But in the Old Testament as well, God would sound a trumpet or have the trumpet blown in order to gather his people, in order to give his divine message. Again, Exodus 19, Leviticus 25, Joshua 6, and so forth. And so you see what's happening here. The prophet is being summoned. He's being called by the trumpet. He's caught up in the spirit. It's on the Lord's day. And he hears behind him, again, this very sound of the trumpet. Now, in verse 11, 
And the New King James, perhaps in others, it says there, saying, I am the Alpha and the Omega. This comes from verse 8. This isn't in all of the Greek manuscripts. It's a, a variant. So some translations don't have it um, for whatever reason. He continues and he says, what you see, write in a book or a scroll and send it to the seven churches. Those churches we've already seen are in Ephesus, Smyrna, Pergamos, and so forth. And so John is commissioned. He's told that he is to write what it is that he sees and that this book and this scroll is to be sent out to the seven churches. And uh, remember back in verse 3, the blessing is promised to those who read it and those who hear the words of the prophecy. And this past week I was uh, presented with uh, an interesting take on verse 3. Verse 3 could be saying that when these, these, this letter is to go back and to the churches, that the, the messenger, the preacher, the pastor is to read it, then there would be those who hear it. We know that's the practice of the early church. That's what they did. And so it was in the context of worship that the book of Revelation would have been read. And so we are told as to what it is John hears, but then we are presented with this vision of the Son of Man, beginning there in verse 12 and down through verse 16. In verse 12, he turns to see the one that speaks to him. He says that, I turn to see the voice that spoke with me. And having turned, I saw seven golden lampstands. Well, what is that? Well, at the end of this chapter, the mystery is given, and we are told in verse 20 that the lampstands are the churches, the seven churches. And uh, the whole idea, this imagery of a lampstand goes back again to the Old Testament. You know, it's not a candle, it's the oil-filled lamps, and they were in the temple. They were in the tabernacle before that. Zechariah talks about this in Zechariah 4. The oil-filled lampstands that were to remain lit at all times. And they signified the very presence of God in His temple with His people. And in particular, the Holy Spirit's presence. And when you think of a lampstand illuminating the dark, or that which would be in the dark otherwise, um, again, we're reminded of the words of Christ. We are the church. We are the true temple of God, Ephesians 2 tells us. And Christ himself in Matthew 5 says to the church, you and you alone are the light of the world. And so the church is to give that testimony to the darkness, to those who are in the darkness, to those who are not believers in the world. And so this message comes to John. The message is to go to the churches and the churches are to send it out into the world. So again, we are reminded of our calling and our task as the church of Jesus Christ. Individually, yes, to bear witness and bear testimony, but also corporately as a body, the body of the Lord Jesus Christ. And so guess who is in the midst of the lampstands? In verse 13, we are told, he said, in the midst of the seven lampstands, one like the Son of Man. Now, who is that? That's Christ. 
Again, this title, the Son of Man, was one of Jesus' favorite titles for himself. Again, it goes back to Daniel, Daniel chapter 7, where there's that vision of one like the Son of Man. It's evident in that chapter that the Son of Man is the promised Messiah. And that the Messiah, of course, is the Lord Jesus Christ. And so we have the Son of Man in the midst of the churches. Christ is present, of course, by His Spirit in the churches. He's not left us on our own. When he gives his great commission in Matthew 28, he says, I am with you always, even to the end of the age. And how is that possible? He is with us by means of his spirit. And so he is in their midst. And then we get a glimpse of his appearance in verse 13. He continues, he's clothed with a garment. That garment goes down to the feet, we're told, and girded about the chest uh, is this golden band. And so he has on this robe that goes to his feet. Now, what is that? Well, the word he used there for the robe uh, refers to the article of clothing that the high priest would wear in the Old Testament. Also, when we look at that word in the Old Testament that's used here for the robe. It's also the attire at times of kings in the Old Testament. And so we read about that in 1 Samuel and so forth, 1 Samuel 18. And so here's Christ presented as the one delivering the divine message to his prophet. Here's Christ pictured as the one wearing the attire of the high priest and the king. And so again, we have the one who's presented as the prophet, the priest, the king, our Lord Jesus. And so John continues. Notice what verse 14 says about his head and his hair. They were white like wool. And remember, this is figurative language. They're conveying something to us. Uh, As we read a a moment ago in Daniel 7, this is the picture of the Son of Man in that Old Testament chapter. And uh, people typically who have white hair are advanced in years. And uh, two things probably are represented here. Um, This old age, and more particularly the eternality of the Lord Jesus Christ. He's not only man, he is the God-man. And uh, being the second person of the Trinity, he has always existed. He is eternal. But also, when we think about white and we think about wool in the Old Testament, in Isaiah chapter 1, in verse 18, God tells his people, though your sins are as scarlet, they shall be what? White as snow. And so then here is also the purity of our Lord Jesus. His holiness, I think, is what is being conveyed here. And of course, as Jesus and as God is holy, he tells us we are to be holy. And in his seven letters to the seven churches, he's going to issue that call to be holy again. But he keeps going. He says that his... Head and his hair were like wool, white as snow. 
But in verse 14, he says something about his eyes. They're like a flame of fire. Why is that? It's because his eyes pierce everything. They're the all-piercing, and therefore we have the all-knowing Lord Jesus Christ. If he is the one who is to judge the hearts of men, it, it is requisite that he knows all things. And so here we have a reference to, I think, the omniscience of even the Lord Jesus himself. And that is to say the one who is in the midst by his spirit, who is in the midst of the, the seven lampstands, the seven churches, even in our midst, he is among his people. He's with John. He's with you. He's with me. He knows everything about us. Christ knew where John was. Why? Because he was with him. And he could see him. He not only knows our condition, he not only knows our situation, he knows what's in our hearts. Remember John 2? He knew what was in man. He had no need that people tell him about other men. He knew what's in the hearts of men. And while this might be convicting at times, it can be overwhelming. It also, for the Christian, should be encouraging. I I think it is comforting to know that God knows. He knows my situation. He knows my struggle. That struggle might only be in my heart. It might only be in my mind. But he knows. Or it might be evident to everyone what my struggles are. Uh, It might be all out there on the table. And Christ knows about that. And uh, he definitely knows how to address my issues, my concerns, my fears, my worries, my heartbreaks, and all of those things. And so his eyes, his eyes pierce even to our very souls. In verse 15, he talks about his feet. His feet were like fine brass as if refined in a furnace. What does he mean? Perhaps this goes back to Daniel 2. Uh, but nevertheless, um, it is a fine metal, it's heavy, and it is refined. Remember, um, this is true even today, when you want to strengthen metal, when you want to purify metal, it has to go into the crucible, has to go into the fire, and so all of the dross in that process is removed. Now, Jesus never had any dross. Jesus is perfect. Jesus is sinless, um, and his feet are like fine brass with no impurities. And so, again, we're reminded of his purity. One says this represents the foundation of moral purity. Perhaps it is a reference to Daniel 10, chapter chapter 10, verse 6. But when you think about it, feet take you places. Feet represent action. And so that is to say all of his actions are pure. They're holy. And so we need not to second guess the movements, uh, the providence of God, even of our Lord Jesus Christ. And so then he continues with his voice in verse 15. He says uh, his voice, it was as the sound of many waters. Uh, Some point out the fact that John is on the island. He hears the waves continually crashing on the shore of that island. 
But also, this too probably points us back to Ezekiel. Uh, Ezekiel 1, Ezekiel chapter 43, where God's voice gushes as the waters. It's powerful. It's mighty. And in his right hand, verse 16, we are told, in his right hand are the seven stars. Well, who are they? Well, we are told down in verse 20 that the seven stars are the angels of the seven churches. Now, the word angel is angelos in the Greek. Literally, it means messenger. Uh, It means angel. Surprise, surprise. It's used many times in this book, Revelation. Uh, So the question becomes, what, what does it mean? Because it can mean a preacher, one who is the messenger of God. Um, I don't think that it means the angel like the celestial beings. Some have said, well, this means that all the churches, each church has a, a certain angel that protects them. And uh, Jesus alludes to protective angels in the Gospels, but uh, these angels will be rebuked at times in the, the letters to the churches. And uh, the angels are either good or bad. So I don't think this refers to the celestial beings. I agree with those that this probably means the pastors or the preachers of the churches that are represented in the seven churches mentioned in verse 20. So probably the messengers are the preachers, and they are in his right hand. Um, That's comforting because the right hand of God is that place of security that place of privilege, and uh, no matter what one is going through, whether it's yourself or, or me or John, for that matter, it is good to be reminded that we are in the right hand of the Lord Jesus. You know, the good shepherd, John 10, he holds us by our hands. He holds the Father's hand. No one can snatch us out of his hand, no matter what we go through in life. This is the place of power and safety. And so the one who walks in the midst of the lampstands holds us in his power. He upholds us. He sustains us. He protects us. Then in verse 16, we're told of what comes out of his mouth. It's that double-edged, that two-edged sword. Obviously, I think that refers to the word of God. This will be... Uh, mentioned again later in Revelation, I think it's chapter 19. And what is, what is the point here about this two-edged sword? Well, the same language is used in Isaiah 11.4, Isaiah 49 and verse 2, where God's word strikes the nations. That's what will happen later in the book. This is an allusion, I think, to uh, the judgment of Christ. It points forward to what Christ is now doing in the world. He's judging the world. He even judges the church. Um, He purges the church. In Acts chapter 5, there were those who died, Ananias and Sapphira, for lying to the Holy Spirit. Um, In 1 Corinthians 11, there were those who died because they came to the Lord's Supper in an unworthy manner. Perhaps Ananias and Sapphira were not believers. Those 
uh, at the Lord's table, perhaps all of them were, most of them were. And God chastises, he disciplines those whom he loves. He does discipline his church. He sanctifies his church. Hebrews 13. But when it comes to the world, he does take vengeance on those who are his enemies and do not repent. He takes vengeance on those who would attack his own people. We'll see that in Revelation 19 and verse 15. And uh, by the way, the destruction of Jerusalem by the Romans in Luke 21 is called in uh, that chapter, our Lord Jesus caused the destruction days of vengeance. These are the days of vengeance. In other words, Christ and his providence is taking vengeance upon those who rejected him, those who crucified him, the unbelieving and apostate Jews at that time. When it comes to this sword that comes out of the mouth of Jesus, by the way, this teaches us again that we aren't to take everything in Revelation literally. The sword is the word of God. Just imagine the picture there. Um, Matthew Henry says about this sword, he says, the sword of his word slays the lusts of his people and at all times or and all at enmity with them. Let me read that again. The sword of his word slays the lust of his people and all at enmity with them. So Christ, he is judging the nations as the risen and reigning Messiah, even as we speak. In verse 16, he says something about his countenance. It was like the sun shining in its strength. Obviously, the comparison is to his power. Christ, being the God-man, is omnipotent. He's all-powerful. <clears throat> and the language here uh, goes back even to Judges 5.31, where it's talking about the sun str- shining in its strength, comparing that to a victorious Israelite warrior. And so here we have a picture of the end-time messianic warrior, our Lord Jesus. And so there's the picture. John hears these words. He turns around. He sees this glorious vision, this picture of our Lord Jesus Christ. Now, what is John's response to this image? Well, it's there in verse 17. When I saw him, I fell at his feet as dead. That's the response. That's a proper response. If Christ were to appear in this way to us right now, we would have the same response. This was the same response that Isaiah had in Isaiah 6, right? He went into the temple and he had this vision of God. He saw the the living God seated on his throne and his glory, the tail of his robe filled the temple. And there are the seraphim shouting back and forth, declaring, holy, holy, holy is the Lord God almighty. And uh, they, they proclaim that. And then Isaiah's response is that, well, I'm undone. I'm cursed. I am going to die. But God there comforts him. I believe that was a picture of the Lord Jesus Christ, by the way. I think it's John 12 says that. Well, here, look at what Jesus does in verse 17. 
John says, he laid his right hand on me. His right hand. Again, protection. And again, uh, even though this is figurative, it's a vision, we are reminded of, of touch in God's word. Jesus, he could have just spoken at times. He could have just spoken and healed people, but he often touched people. There is that element of human touch that is meaningful. And here he calms John and he says, do not be afraid. I am the first and the last. You see, John, he looked at this holy picture of the Lord Jesus Christ. I should say manifestation of the Lord Jesus Christ. And he knows his own heart. He knows who he is, his own sin. And yet Jesus and his purity and his holiness. And he says, well, I have to die because no man can look upon God and live. But Jesus comforts him and he reminds him. He puts his hand on him and he says, I am the first and the last. I am the one who has started and began your salvation and I will complete it. Have you ever felt undone? You're convicted of your sin. You get a glimpse of the holiness of God. You read his word and all of these things flash before you. You're convicted. Well, Christ reminds us here that he is the author and finisher of our faith. He will sanctify us. And then he says, do not be afraid. I'm the first and the last. I'm he who lives and was dead. And behold, I'm alive forevermore. And so, John, I know you're on the island. I know you are suffering. I know you're in chains. I know you think you might die at any moment. But even if you do, I'm the first and the last. I am the one who is, who was, and who is to come. I'm alive forevermore. He's he's reminding John of his resurrection. They tried to bury Jesus forever. They tried to put him away forever. But on the third day, he would burst forth and overcome the grave, overcome Hades, overcome death. And so what's the point? Because of our connection with Jesus by faith in him, our union with Christ, he has secured our resurrection by his resurrection from the dead. Again, I go back to 1 Corinthians 15. Paul makes that argument there. And so as Paul says in Romans chapter 8, there's nothing that can separate us from the love of God, which is in Christ Jesus our Lord, not even death itself. In fact, in verse 18, Jesus says that he has the keys of Hades and death. If you have keys to a door, Um, If you have keys to the city, you have authority over it. Jesus has authority over the grave, over death. And this has been proven by his resurrection. In other words, as Jesus says in the Gospels, because I live, you shall live. So why do we fear death as Christians? Why do we fear coronavirus if even if it is the worst plague in human history, and it's not, why would we fear it? Jesus has overcome death. Why would I fear the worst kind of death? I mean, yeah, I don't want to go through a painful death myself. 
But even if I do, he will give me the grace to endure it. And I won't die. My body will, but it's going to be resurrected too, just like the body of the Lord Jesus Christ. And so even though persecution comes, whether it's from one individual or a political force, I need not fear. That's the point. And so then John is commissioned in verse 19 to write this book, that which he has seen, the things which are, the things which will take place after this, probably an outline of the book. So what does this tell us? It tells us that this is written for the church of Jesus Christ. The book of Revelation is written, brothers and sisters, for you and me. That he wants us to know what is in these letters of the churches, what is in this book, to to believe it, to receive it. And so by this first vision, through John the Apostle, Christ himself prepares these seven churches. And in that sense, we're we're prepared, prepared now to receive the rest of the book, knowing that Jesus is judging the nations, knowing that he has overcome death and we need not fear anything. Or to put it in the way that our Lord Jesus put it in the Gospels, he said to us, in this world, you will have tribulation, but be of good cheer, for I have overcome the world. Amen. Let's pray. Lord, we pray that you would help us to believe these things, to live before you, Deo, as it's been put, before the face of God that we would be strong, that we would be strong witnesses of your grace and your peace that you've given to us. And we pray in the name of Christ. Amen.